Good afternoon. I'm Chris O'Connor, Principal Investigator of the Hartfield Collaboratory, and we're here today with our Heart of the Matter podcast and a very important and special topic today that we're going to discuss with our distinguished panel, and I'll introduce them shortly. But are we doing enough to improve the recruitment of women in heart failure clinical trials? This has been a concern for the three decades that I've been involved in, in clinical trial conduct. I think progress has been slow. There's many good ideas and important initiatives. I think that we have to use this forum, the collaboratory, the podcast to increase awareness and to really try to accelerate some of these excellent initiatives that are out there. And so before we get started, I'd like to introduce our distinguished panel, Dr. Marielle Jessup, who's the Chief Science and Medical Officer from the American Heart Association. Marielle, welcome. Would you like to say a word or two about yourself? Well, thank you. It's great to be with this very distinguished panel and with you, Chris. Let's see, what can I say? I was watching a marching band uh, this weekend, and it brought to mind that I used to spend several summers when I was in middle school marching in firemen's parades, and I was a clarinetist. And the reason that I thought about it was, if you saw the coronation, there was a band that was on horseback, and I thought, oh my gosh, it was hard enough to walk and play the clarinet. I can't imagine riding on a horse and trying to play the clarinet. Oh my gosh. I know. It was, I just don't know how it didn't, you know, the reed didn't go up into the roof of your mouth. Well, I think the R value of musical talent in heart failure specialists, and we'll ask Wayne Bachelor if he is a musical specialist, because it's very high in this group. And we've been thinking about starting through the collaboratory, the S3 Gallup uh, band. And Marielle, we're going to invite you to be in that band as our clarinetist. Dr. Wayne Bachelor, who's Associate Director of the Inova Heart and Vascular Institute and Director of Interventional Cardiology. Wayne, welcome. Uh, give us a little word about yourself. Well, thanks, Chris. I'm really pleased to be amongst this illustrious panel. Um, Maybe a couple of things you may not know about me is, uh, you know, I grew up north of the border in Canada, obsessed with hockey. I was convinced I was going to go to the NHL until I realized it was much easier to get into medical school than make that leap. And, uh, went in a different direction, but I'm convinced I'm the best left winger at the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute. I'm <laughs> convinced of that to this day. That's terrific. And go Carolina, by the way. They got, a, they, they got some headwinds against uh, uh, some teams. Dr. Joanne, oh, go ahead, Wayne. I say it bothers me immensely to see a Florida team beat up my Maple Leafs, so I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> uh, Dr. Joanne Lindenfeld, who's professor of medicine and distinguished professor at Vanderbilt University in heart failure. Like Marielle, I played the saxophone in the marching band, but I really wanted to play the French horn, but cannot carry a tune to save my life. So <laughs> I had to give up for that. It's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, telling you, we've got the team, Dr. Constanzo, Maria Rosa, welcome. Thank you for having me. My most important news is that I sold my first photograph from an exhibit. And so I'm very excited about photography. Unfortunately, the, or fortunately, the buyer was an attorney, <laughs> but it was a view of the Andes in Colombia just before sunrise. Oh. 
So I think I I try to uh, determine why I like photography so much. And I, I think I discovered the reason. And that is that I'm always thinking about what I need to do next. What do I need to finish next? What is coming next? And photography only activity where when I'm taking a photograph, I I'm truly in the present and I don't think about anything else. That's really well said. And those of you who have seen Maria Rosa's photography, it's truly spectacular. Thank you for pursuing that passion. Dr. Bill Abraham, professor of medicine, Ohio State University, the, the U, as they say. Bill, welcome again. You're, you've been a regular on our team here. Yeah, hi, Chris. Well, look, I have no musical ability, so don't ask me to join the band. <laughs> but like Maria Rosa, I do share a love of photography. I'm not nearly as good at it as she is, but little known fact, as a high school student and in college, working my way through college, I served as an apprentice to a professional photographer, uh, shooting weddings and parties and other events, and made a little bit of money that helped offset tuition back in the that's awesome. And uh, thank you, Bill. And, and Dr. Fuzat, who is, works as a, an advisor to the FDA on faculty at Duke University and, and, and a leader in the Heart Failure Collaboratory, welcome. Thank you, Mona Fuzat. It's great to be with this group. I previously disclosed that I played the drums as well as the piano, so I can be in the band. <laughs> great to be here again. Makes, makes the S3 Gallup team here. Well, let's let's jump into uh, the heart of the matter here, and 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 let me just give you a couple statistics that we've been struggling with as a community. Obviously, the collaboratory is a multi-stakeholder team that is trying to optimize clinical trial conduct, therapeutic conduct in the United States and the world through improvement in the quality, value, efficiency of of the process. And one of the important areas of our focus has been how do we get better representation in heart failure clinical trials. We've discussed previously in one of our podcasts underrepresented minorities, and today we're discussing the recruitment of women in heart failure trials. And let me just give you some facts. In, in 2001, I was part of the leadership team. Milton Packer was the principal investigator. The Copernicus trial, you can already hear to, to males involved in that trial. Recruitment of women in that trial was uh, 20% in an advanced HEFREF trial. Paradigm HF 2014, Dr. Uh, Scott and, and John McMurray, part of that leadership team. Recruitment in that uh, heart failure reduced ejection fraction clinical trial, 21%. And then Galactic HF, uh, just recently published, well, over a year ago now, New England Journal, 2021, 21% recruitment of women. And yet we know that women represent about 35 to 40% of patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And so I'm going to open it up by asking uh, Dr. Jessup, what is the deal here? Why are we not making any progress? I think like any really troublesome problem, it's multifactorial. 
One thing that keeps coming out over and over again is that when women are leading the clinical trial investigator team or part of the clinical trial investigator team, there's more women recruited into the study. And, and the unfortunate fact in heart failure trials, not to mention most other cardiovascular trials, is that a handful of trials have been led by women. We had two of the PIs of this handful, Dr. Lindenfeld and Dr. Costanza. But not only have there not been leaders of the clinical trial, they haven't even been women on the steering committee over and over and over again. So that's the first problem. The second problem is, is that women have different motivations for coming into clinical trials and need to hear the answers to what they're seeking for motivations. And I, I don't think that that's really been well studied and has not been therefore published. And I thirdly think that women in general are underrepresented throughout all cardiology, including heart failure. Not only is the number of 20% reminiscent of how many women come into HEFREF trials, that's actually reminiscent of the number of women in cardiology. And that hasn't changed for 30 years either, which is astonishing to me since right now, 50% of women are in medical school classes. That's just my opening remarks of, of the couple of the issues around this thorny problem. Well, that's, those are terrific. And obviously, you have been advocating appropriately the number one killer of women in the world, the United States, is cardiovascular disease. So this is particularly an important challenge from the whole ecosystem that you just nicely described. Joanne, compliment Marielle's comments. I would emphasize what Marielle already said, but I think it, as so often happens, there's some deeper issues that reflect society. And I think one of the reasons we, I started being interested in this way back when, when we did the only beta blocker trial that failed in HEFREF, which was Bucindolol, but we were not recruiting enough women. It was a partially NIH-sponsored trial, so we looked into the reasons and and, and we were able by the end to recruit 33% from the non-VA site. So we did pretty well by providing extra monies for women. And the reasons for that is that women tend to be older. They are much more often likely to be without a partner when they have HFREF. They're economically disadvantaged and, and they drive, they have fewer, less often have driver's licenses. All those things are true. So getting back and forth to extra appointments is more expensive and more difficult for women. And I think until we address that, we, we will miss quite a few in these trials. Excellent points. And, and, and really nice how you said with the best trial, 33%. And that was, I think, before the NIH moved forward with their act, really a strong stick to say, listen, we, there should be recruitment targets and goals in clinical trials. And I think it's, it's been effective. Maria Rosa? Let me just interject, though. It, you just said it hasn't changed. I would argue that that NIH stick has been ineffective and is not backed up with by any sort of teeth, so to speak. Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's push back on that a little bit. So the investigators who run these trials are very nervous about funding, and the funding can be pulled. Now, whether it has been pulled, probably not to the extent that we, based on that, 
But I do think the data is there, and we'll have to look at this, but I think the data says in the NIH-conducted HEFREF trials, the prevalence of women recruited is higher than in the private trials, in contrast. That doesn't mean we're doing great. I mean, I don't think 28 to 33% is the right number, but I think it is better than the 20% we're seeing in the non-NIH trials. Maria Rosa. Well, I, I think that what I'm seeing, not only in FREF trials, if, so what I want to say really is that I think the Heart Failure Collaboratory has a great opportunity to try to change things. And the reason is that, as you said, we have multiple stakeholders. And this include not only the NIH, but also industry. What I'm finding out is that a lot of people from industry actually join in our discussions. And they come to me and ask me questions about our discussions. And I think that non-NIH bodies like industry, they are a major offender in this particular area. Because what they do is that no matter what study they have, they go back to the same people to lead the trials. They never go to, they never inquire about the interest of other people. I know it's a different areas, but even worse is the area of pulmonary hypertension. I looked at all the trials done in the last 20 years, and not only there are few women that are leaders, but the principal investigator and the steering committee are the same people mm -hmm. for 20 years. And I think they need to, they need to expand their horizons. Just today, I had a conversation with a medical liaison from Novo Nordisk, who is now entering the cardiovascular space, and they're doing a trial with, with an anti-inflammatory agent in FPEF. And this lady, another woman, interestingly, she was extremely surprised that I knew so much about heart failure. I said, well, I've been in this area for a few years. And so I've been following these trials and she was totally, she did not know not only about me, but other women that could lead clinical trials because they keep going back to the same group of people. Fair. Yeah, it's a great observation. That pulmonary hypertension is a great observation. But Dr. Batcher has actually studied this when it comes to how to select sites and, and, and enhance recruitment of black patients in clinical trials. Wayne, maybe you could talk about that. And, and, and are there lessons learned from your research? Yeah, thanks, Chris. There are some lessons learned, and uh, there's some similarities, but there are also some differences in terms of met methods that you can undertake to improve enrollment of women versus other underrepresented groups, such as minorities in clinical trials. If you look at the entire trial ecosystem, uh, there have been some comments made in terms of representation of women on 
leadership committees, that's crucial. It's been shown for every single additional woman on a research leadership role. There's about an 8% increase in the proportion of women in, enrolled in, in those trials. And interestingly, that also improves diversity across other definitions, including minority enrollment. So women tend to do a better job uh, somehow enrolling minorities in clinical trials. Now, we've got to do a better job of understanding predictors of female enrollment beyond that. There's some interesting observations for the mix between outside United States sites versus inside United States sites. U.S. sites actually enroll more women. It's been shown time and time again in trials and, my, and more minorities, whereas OUS, I'm not sure why exactly, but there's actually a little bit lower proportion of women enrolled. So there are a lot of different, as, as Mariel mentioned, this is a multifaceted problem, but the, our lack of ability to address it not only impacts female enrollment, I think it actually has an impact on diverse enrollment in general. So if I had $100 to put into this, I'd really look at the leadership thing first. And then as Maria Rosa mentioned, also look at industry studies because the NIH actually has shown a little bit better traction in this regard and a little bit more effectiveness for enrolling women than industry-sponsored studies. Industry-sponsored trials have actually not moved the needle at all. We've got a lot of work to do. Terrific, Wayne. And I'm going to ask Bill Abraham to comment about device trials specifically in women, and then I'm going to ask Dr. Fuzat to comment on what we've heard about the carrot versus the stick policy of enhancing recruitment in special population. Bill, talk about device trials. There's challenges, but there's also, I know in the Momentum 3 LVAD trial, 19% enrollment, but I also know that you've been involved with a lot of device sponsors that have made great progress. I think we are making progress. First, I'll say this is a particular challenge for device trials. I think for reasons already stated by others, in particular by Joanne, sometimes device trials involve different sorts of and, and perhaps more intense follow-up schedules. They involve procedures and sometimes device implantation and return to study visits for following and monitoring all of that. So issues around transportation, childcare, being away from the home, et cetera, et cetera, become even more magnified, I think, in the setting of, of device trials. But I think on the other hand, because device trials tend to be smaller than, than drug trials, there often is more focus and a more concerted effort to try to recruit women and upper underrepresented minority candidates in these trials. And we've seen in some studies like Champion, for example, and others, a better than proportionate representation of some underrepresented minority groups in those studies as well. And I think it really takes getting all of our stakeholders to buy into this. As I think out loud here, Chris, perhaps one thing the collaboratory could do here is to just come up with some best practices for industry in particular. In BEST, you may recall that there was offered to sites a differential payment, a little bit more uh, for recruiting a woman compared to a man because it was appreciated that it took more time and effort on the part of the, of the of the research site to recruit women because of all of these barriers that we've already been talking about. And you know, we ought to be fully covering patients' expenses for participating in clinical trials. 
if they have to get daycare, if they need transportation, mileage and parking, whatever it may be. We've got to lower any of the barriers that affect our trials participants or potential trials participants in general, and and certainly those barriers that, that affect the inclusion of women and underrepresented minorities, I think disproportionately, or in particular. And then maybe, and I'm really interesting to hear what Mona has to say, maybe it's time for a bit more of a stick here as well. And I, I want to hear Mona's views on this, but perhaps we can come back to that because I think it's time that study sponsors whether they be NIH or industry, need to be a bit more firm in their assistance, insist insistence that we enroll these populations proportionate to their representation in the disease. That's terrific. And and when we say industry, I want to make it clear, there, there, there's an ecosystem in the industry trials. There's principal investigators, there's and the influence of the steering committee and the executive committee plays a role. So we can't just say that, well, it's industry's fault. It's the, it's, the lead, it's the leadership that plays a big role in who gets on those committees, who gets in that leadership position. So that's, that's really important too. Mona, what, what are your thoughts on the carrot versus the stick? This is something we've been tossing around in the collaboratory now for a year, and there's been some good progress. Sure. Uh, there are different ways to look at this, and certainly the FDA can play a role. And to make it clear, the FDA's initiatives are set forth by Congress. So it literally takes an act of Congress to change these things. But we've been working in the collaboratory to perhaps approach this through more of a carrot approach so that it is a little more favorable to incentivize people to do it rather than just putting up another barrier, let's say, from the FDA, which is a little bit counterintuitive to what we're trying to do in the collaboratory, which is make things a little more accessible to patients. And so our, our general concept here is what has been done in the pediatric space, which has set a brilliant example historically drugs and devices were not studied in the pediatric population, and it was left to everyone to figure it out. And since they've had these policies in place of a six-month patent extension, expedited review, just that six-month patent extension alone can drive so much industry to do this, to do the right thing. And although, of course, it's driven by capitalism, and some people may feel that we shouldn't continue to line the pockets of industry more. Nonetheless, it's been effective. And, and we do live in a capitalist society here in America. And so we know it works. And so we have tried to get some support to take that approach, which is just a six-month patent extension, perhaps a little more resources to pr promote both women and underrepresented minorities in in doing the right thing rather than just telling people they need to do the right thing or believing that they'll do it because it's the right thing to do. And there's examples, I think several of you were probably involved in the, the platinum diversity trial, for example, which actually finished ahead of schedule and had great enrollment rates. So it it was a great concept to prove that how enrolling women and minorities does not slow down the enrollment process. But different people feel differently, and some may feel that the stick approach is, is more of the 
appropriate approach. In my view, putting up more barriers to drug approvals or device approvals is, mm-hmm. is perhaps not the way to go because it does ultimately hurt patients. Well, let's let's go around the room, and, and, and I think, Bill, you may have stimulated this, talking about best practices. Let's say if there was one initiative that the collaboratory should focus on this year going forward, what should it be to improve recruitment of women in heart failure clinical trials? Marielle? Number one, saying it is our goal. This mm-hmm. is our number one goal, and we're we're going to try and do everything we can to tackle this issue. And I I think we should do a compilation of best practices. You, you may know that the AHA has funded a strategically focused research network about diversity in clinical trial enrollment, and they, one of their charges is. We, we want to see a playbook at the end. We call those journal publications, but I call it a playbook about <laughs> how to do this, reproduce scientifically validated within the context of this science network. And, and so I, I think we can start that process within the collaboratory. And I know that there are a lot of people that feel very strongly that they know how to do this. Let's let's find out why they think that, what's the evidence, and and collect that, and we can publish it. Great suggestion. Joanne, on mute. I, I agree with Marielle. We, I, I mean, as we've said, we should really try to have more women as investigators and on committees to help with this, because that will help. That's been shown many times. But I think also, as Marielle said, I think we really have to focus on trying a strategy. For example, if women are less able to get, then do we, do we pay more for travel? And mm-hmm. let's try that and see if that helps. And just put that into a study for a period of time and then say, okay, this works, this doesn't work. I think just one other thing about, again, I point out, women are far more often to be signal, single when they, when they come for these. So they don't have someone to discuss as much. And perhaps creating a, a group that they can discuss things with to just they just go over with about what are the, the positives and the negatives of participating or a support group there would be helpful. But I think we just need to say, these are the number of things we can do. Let's try them. Let's implement them in different studies and see if they're helpful. Really great, great comments. Maria Rosa? I think we need to shake up the laziness of all sponsors. And when they are thinking about a trial, they really need to do their work and their research, find out who published in that area and who may have expertise in that area and go beyond the usual group of people that they return to over and over again, because there are people out there that may have expertise beyond the usual group of people. And also, I would like to bring something up following what Joanne said. I think as women, what I see when I try to recruit women in clinical trial trials is, is really a double whammy because the women that don't have a partner have the challenges that Joanne alluded to. But I see probably a similar challenge in women that do have a partner because nine out of 10 times they are the caretaker of that partner. And 
I hear over and over again, I would like to participate, but I have to take care of my husband. Mm. I have to prepare his medications. I have to make sure he doesn't fall. Whether you are single or, or have a partner, there are different challenges that prevent women from participating. Anything, not just transportation, but anything that can help women free themselves up to participating in the trials. We, we call that, I, I have to ask my son who lives in California syndrome. So men mm -hmm. would never want to say, I have to ask somebody, I have to ask my wife if I can do it. But women always said, well, I have to ask my husband who's not here, or I have to ask my son who lives in California, which is usually, you know, three time zones away yeah. from we are. <laughs> yeah. Ends up being a no, which is a, another barrier. Wayne? I mean, these are great points already made. Just to emphasize strategy and tactics stem from leadership, which also sets the stage for culture of an ecosystem and culture of a, a group of individuals working together. So the women in leadership positions is crucial, both at the executive and steering committee level and also as the PI level. And we should have a better way of selecting and finding those individuals and really put our money where our mouth is. Another thing that I'd love to hear more about is I'd love to do an exit interview on the women and minorities who say no to clinical trials. All these surveys are just general surveys, but we never actually ask anything about the folks who say no. I'd love to do a study looking at those individuals and rank order all these different impediments that we're talking about so we have some contemporary real data on why people say no today. Is it money? Is it risk aversion? Is it lack of insight or understanding? Whatever it is, that's probably the, a missing link that perhaps we could fill a gap for in the future with our, our surveys and other studies. Wayne, there is another huge missing link that I face every single day, and that is the primary care physicians. I cannot tell you how many times I have a patient that is seriously thinking about participating in, in the trial and they want to have the approval of their primary care physician. Mm -hmm. And the primary care physician most of the time says, well, that's too experimental, say no. And what? so at the next visit, the patient comes back and says, my my physician said that it's too experimental and I should stay away. So we have a lot of work to do with the people that the patients rely on to help them make decisions. Chris, I can't believe we've gotten this far into the conversation and artificial intelligence hasn't been mentioned. So I'm gonna put it out there. It seems to be the topic of almost all, all conversations these days. The last thing is whether or not we can identify patients who are appropriate for clinical trials, women in particular, who fulfill the inclusion and exclusion criteria better with uh, cardiac intelligence software or other software. I don't know, that remains to be seen. It's a pipe, pipe dream somewhat, but there is potential for that. So we might be able to target our efforts a little bit more strategically in terms of the resources that we have to identify potential clinical trial participants with AI. There's a potential for it. I think you're exactly right. We're not using our EHR in a way to, to benefit women to be aware of the trials that we're doing. Bill, we, need to, we need to educate the primary physicians to what a clinical trial is and 
and that in a clinical trial, we go to very lengthy measures to ensure the patient's safety. And because the patient is in a clinical trial, it doesn't mean that we are experimenting on the patient without regard for safety. And I don't think these primary care physicians really realize this. Well, that's a that's a bigger issue than what we're talking today, but it is one of the charges of the collaboratory. Less than 1% of patients with heart failure are enrolled in clinical trials, and it's the whole ecosystem needs help. But Bill, give us give us a charge for for on this topic for for next year. So look, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to address the question you asked, which I think was pick one thing. Yeah. And I think I would start with improving the involvement of women, both as site investigators and in the leadership of clinical trials. And I think in particular as an action item, if we could get our industry members of the collaboratory to include this, for example, in their site interactions and site qualification visits. Let's add a question to the site qualification visit. Mm -hmm. Do you have a woman working in this subspecialty who could serve as a sub-investigator or principal investigator for this trial? Just something as simple as that. And we may be able to identify more women that way also to include on steering committees and executive committees, publication committees, and so on and so forth. But if we could ask that question with every site that's being considered and preferentially select those who check check the check the box yes we might make some progress here because i think by having women at sites and on these leadership committees advocating all the other great ideas that have come up here we could maybe really make some progress i i couldn't agree more and and mona in your comments you might also mention about the data safety monitoring board training program that we're doing and and the initial success of identifying young women to be part of that program do you refer to me? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, as a young woman. Well, it'll be great to have you. Student. It'll be great to have you there as an example of success, Maria Rosa. But yeah, I think everything everyone said, being intentional about this, we've been working on it through the collaboratory. I, there has been some legislation, which is a, a start that the FDA is also working through. There's a diversity committee now at the FDA working on some of these issues already, but to the extent that, you know, legislators are hearing about it as, as something that really needs to be done, I think giving the FDA authority to do those things is another area that we didn't really discuss, but I think would make a huge difference. And then to your point, what the collaboratory is doing, we've involved many young women in our, our efforts, our projects, the DSMB training that's coming up, we identified the majority of the trainees as women so that they will be considered on committees going forward. And I think really what you've all said is we've got to improve the culture. I think Wayne said this nicely, we've got to enhance the culture and we've got to catch up. There's been a, a years of gap of inattention to this issue. And therefore, the, the number of people that we can get into these leadership positions is, is really a subset of what it should be. And I've made a thousand mistakes in clinical trial conduct. And I've supervised more neutral and negative trials than any heart failure clinical trialist. But one thing I feel good about is that we asked 
Dr. Ileana Pena in, in, in 2000 when we were running HF Action to be chair of the Heart Failure Action Executive Committee. And our recruitment, as Joanne said, in the non-VA sites, overall was 28%. At that time, 20% was normal, but over 30% in the non-VA sites. And frankly, the results, there was enough statistical power, most people don't know that, that the benefits of exercise were actually statistically significant and greater in women. And that's why we have to have this type of recruitment and efforts going forward. I want to take this opportunity to really thank this panel for an outstanding discussion. Like we often do with Heart of the Matter, we raise a lot of issues. We answer few, but I think we're prodding and pushing to go forward. And what I like what Marielle and, and Joanne said, let's, let's get our best practices, best experiences, and, and create a playbook that we can work with now and articulate what we need to do going forward. Mm-hmm.